Lester, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. So, I, yeah. so for um, for those uh, for those who who um, who don't personally know you as I do, um, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Um, tell us what you know. What's your what you do right now? What's your what is your relationship with archaeology at the moment? At the moment, I am suffering through the last stages of my PhD <laughs> in the <laughs> University of Sheffield in the UK. Uh, yeah, I've been doing it for the last three and a half years in the final stages of writing up at the moment. I'm studying uh, use of space on this Aegean island called Dascalia. Um, it's an early Bronze Age Cycladic culture um, ritual site, basically. It's like a sanctuary with a joining settlement that facilitates the ritual practices that are going mm. So, but th that is not actually how you got involved with archaeology, if I'm not wrong, right? Uh, so how, how exactly, how exactly did you fall victim to archaeology? As, <laughs> as... <laughs> well, um, I, I started with a degree, but I, came, I didn't go to university until a bit later on in life. I was 25 when I went mm. so started with I was just I left school at 17 and then became a plasterer for a bit and then worked in retail and bars and things and then um I just thought I don't want to do this anymore and I've, I always was interested since an early age in like history and archaeology and things I thought why not <laughs> let's just go for it and so went to university University of Sheffield uh, studied a BSc in archaeological science. Straight after that, I went into a master's program in archaeological materials. So looking at ceramics, glass, metals, the processes of changing technology and how to analyze them, statistical analysis and things like that. And then that was still at the University of Sheffield. And then started my PhD a year after that in a similar thing while well, using PXRF analysis, which is a way of chemical analysis to look at the use of space, which I, the analysis type I took from like the material mass looking thing, basically. Mm. And so, now, so, so PXR, now you have to excuse me because I, I'm not, I'm not super. Sorry, yeah, date. yeah, I've been thinking about these things for so long, I just go into the jargon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, you know, basically what, what I'm, what I'm interested in um, you know, what I'm interested in talking to you about and, and I've, and you, you know, you know, my interests, you've known my interests for a long time. And, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in methodology, right. Um, and I'm interested in, in how and why, you know, one methodology gets used over another. Um, and even at a, at a sort of at a more, you know, I guess, fundamental level, I'm interested in like philosophy, right. So the, the the idea behind adopting XRF um, for archaeology because I mean XRF was not initially used in this way. This is something that sort of came into the field later in its development. Is that right? Or sure. So XRF is just a way of chemical analysis, basically. So I don't know if you want me to explain technology or not. It doesn't really matter. It's a way that you can tell the element elemental makeup of something that you're mm. firing X-rays at, basically. And so it would traditionally be used to analyze materials, like in factories and things, to look at if they're made properly and stuff like that. Geologists have used them to look at 
um, different makeups of rocks and stuff, for instance. And in archaeology, we're pretty good at adopting new technology. New technology about ten years too late, but at least it gets there in the end. But the idea behind using chemical analysis of soils, specifically in archaeology, is that human activity leaves behind chemical residues of that activity. So, for instance, we're sweating and we're moving through space and we're leaving dust and sweat and things everywhere that we go. And that kind of thing can be picked up through, well, it leaves a residue in the soil and can be picked up through chemical analysis. But like a good example where it really comes into use is like craft technology, basically. So like, let's look at copper metallurgy. If you're doing a smelt or casting or something in a space, you're going to be introducing copper into otherwise sterile soil in terms of copper. And so by analysing the copper residues in that soil, you can tell whether or not that space has been used for copper metallurgy. Wow. And I mean, more than that, you can look at the use of space and things, which is more theoretical, like, way of using it. But that basic, the basic idea is that anthropogenic signatures are left in soils through human activity, and we can analyze that through chemical analysis. Wow. All right. So, so really, you know, the, the point of adopting this type of analysis is to, is to get a further, more detailed, more, I don't know, like accurate understanding of, of, you know, of, of what was going on in a certain area, um, in a way that wouldn't be necessarily obvious through pure excavation. Right. I mean, there's, there's no amount of, right. Right. So the technique started in archeology span as a purely perspective survey kind of method, like a Mm -hmm. bit like geophysics or whatever. So you come along to a field that was never going to be excavated or prior to an excavation and you do like a, really like low resolution geochemical analysis like once every 10 meters or something take a sample and looking at the variation in the chemistry like phosphorus is particularly good for that because lots of human activities like raising animals or human waste and things preparing food leaves around anomalous levels of phosphorus basically so people came along just did p analysis 10 meter resolution over whatever survey area they wanted to do, looked at where the spikes were, and that's where the archaeology is, basically. And then later on, multi-elemental analysis came in, still with survey techniques, but you could start to look at different elements of what they meant, especially through excavation, you could see, like, correlate that to different elements that you saw on the surface. What I've been doing for my project is analysing every single context of excavation at, like, a 20 to 30 centimeter resolution it's a really really intensive survey within within the excavation and so what that can do is we go to copper again just as an easy example things associated with copper metallurgy can move right slag can move crucible can move molds can move what can't move is the soil associated with it and so even in an area which is sterile of fines I can do a chemical analysis and go 100% that that room is used for copper metallurgy in some kind of way, basically. And and you can you can make that determination by comparing the area that you're surveying to itself. Meaning meaning that you know if you if you were going at a 20 centimeter you know stripe or a 20 centimeter uh, interval, 
and you find that there's no copper over here, no copper over here, but then finally you find lots and lots of copper, right? Followed by no copper, no copper, no copper, right? Then that is even stronger evidence that that, that, that particular area had something to do with, uh, with metallurgy. Is that, I mean, is that the basic theory behind it or? Right, yeah. I mean, at that resolution, you're normally looking in specific rooms. And so that whole room probably was associated, or that whole space, like the context of archaeology was used for that. But you can see this, the gradual rise and decline of uh, copper concentrations. And so see the more intense areas of activity and stuff. So maybe that's where they were casting in, like pouring the copper or whatever. Or maybe that's where they were charging, crushing the ore or charging the ore into a smelting path or whatever. But yeah, that's absolutely what it is, yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. So so then is it safe to call what you're doing science? Um, well, a scientific method needs to be replicated, right? And so all of archaeology struggles with this question because once you've excavated a certain context you can no longer replicate it but i mean insofar as you can use the results to look at different sites and replicate the results from that then yeah i suppose it's using scientific scientific methods of analysis in order to look at archaeological features basically right and but but you're also using inductive reasoning and you're also using i mean like you know much in the same way that that I, I like to make the argument um, that I guess you can't necessarily call um, detective work science, but it does share something with science, doesn't it? Right? Because you know, you, you know, it's it's like you know, you care about the outcome, right? You care, you know, one way or the other. You know, if if, if you've been robbed. And there is a way to figure out or determine, you know, who did the robbery. You know, you you presumably are very interested in that answer, and you want to be able to use all the tactics and techniques and everything else at your at your disposal. And then sometimes you just have to, you know, draw conclusions based on the clues that you have at hand. And isn't is that not you know science? Even though there it is missing this this element of you know. I guess repeatability, or you know, there's there is a there's like a mini crisis of replication going on in both contexts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. It, it is very much like detective work archaeology, as you know. Like that is basically what you're doing, especially in prehistoric ages. Like, right. And, and and we should mention, right, in prehistoric contexts, this is especially important because we don't we can't really cheat. Right. And compare the records or, you know, compare like a traveler's account of walking through this space and then compare what the traveler, you know, had to say about, uh, you know, and over here was this building and over there was that building. And then once you go, you know, you it sort of gives you an idea to look of where to look based on the the accounts of these, you know, these ancient written accounts. If you don't have that, then you're sort of left with nothing but the the material record. I mean, that's, you know, and, and, and that's not just a. A problem for you know the Bronze Age Aegean, but also for other contexts, um, even in in later eras when there when there was or when there were written records, but maybe the records don't survive, right? I mean, so I, I know in the UK, you know, this is a particularly um, interesting way to do archaeology, just because you know, in in if you want to learn more about what 
England looked like after the departure of, you know, Roman troops from the area, then, I mean, you're sort of left with these techniques that you would be using in other contexts like the Iron Age or, you know, Bronze yeah, Age. Or or yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. It's nice in a way because you're not led by any biased writing or whatever. Like it's just pure using the evidence in front of you, purely using the evidence. But not that writing isn't evidence, but we know from learning historical analysis that it has all sorts of biases. Sure. To it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there, there's an open question as to whether or not some of our ancient authors ever did any of the things that they claim to have done. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, the famous example that I can come up with is the example of Herodotus, you know, who's supposedly traveling all over the ancient world. Um, and he's been to Babylon and he's been to Egypt and he's been to Scythia, the north, you know, the northern north of the Danube. And, you know, but did he really go to all these different places yeah, or, or did he just sort of hear about it? Right. Mm. Yeah. And we don't necessarily know. So, OK, so so my question for you is. Since I didn't have this type of training and, and like an undergraduate context, right? Um, but you did. So when you're going through the training in archaeology, um, is this is 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 this sort of like methodology um, or or questions of methodology? Is that something that gets highlighted? Um, and are you learning a lot? You know, via archaeological theory or um or you know is there an experimental approach that you guys take or how exactly does the training go when you're when you're at that level right so undergrad level i can i mean i can only speak for my institution for sheffield i know it will vary from program to program in universities but we definitely there was an emphasis on archaeological theory mixed with, well, scientific methods of analysis and then interpreted using archaeological theory. So we learned a lot of theory, a lot of methods, basically, and how to put them together in undergrad. So, I mean, all undergraduate degrees are a broad stroke, right? But, like, there is a certain way to pick your stream, and I chose, like, the archaeological science stream of an archaeology degree. And so there was a big emphasis on theory, a big emphasis on methodology in mm. Sheffield. So then it might understand that that you could you could pick like another track um, that's both housed in inside of archaeology and that you picked, you know, this this sort of, you know, scientific path. But then there's like other ways to go with it. And like, what, what are what are I don't know if you even remember what the other ways. Yeah, yeah. So you could choose human osteology, mm. which is like bones and human remains you could choose zoo archaeology looking at animal remains to choose environmental which is part of, well it was one of the streams of the archaeological science degree to be fair but like i chose materials you could go environmental looking at seeds and soil processes and things you could look at landscape archaeology all sorts of different things some people obviously chose like just a purely like historical kind of historical kind of archaeology so like They'll specialize in the Bronze Age Aegean, and that was their stream for undergraduate. They do a dissertation in the Bronze Age Aegean. So there, there were loads of different ways that you could approach an undergrad. The first year was basically our like 101 classes, and everyone learned the same. And then from the second year onwards, you started specializing. Mm. That's that's super interesting to me, just because there's there's you know, we, we sort of don't do it that way in the United States where we, we have, um, you know, the, the major, I, I would say that archeology span 
you know, in general is, is a little bit homeless in the United States where, you know, depending on what university you're at and what program you're looking at, it might be housed inside of an anthropology department, or it might be housed inside of a, you know, a history department or like a classics department, um, as it is, you know, in, in my institution, um, or you could have two different, um, you could have, you know, archeology span that exists in the classics department, which exists sort of alongside an anthropology department. Um, and, and the two, the two different tracks really don't have anything to do with each other necessarily. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see, you know, how the organization differs, you know, from place to place and, and what goes on, um, in other, uh, I guess, university settings. I mean, did you, did you find that you had a lot of, you know, overlap or that you were able to, to sort of talk and converse with people on different tracks or, you know, is there a lot of cross-pollination going on or, or not? Yeah. Well, we're all in the same department. It's in the same building complex. If there's a big emphasis on collaboration because archaeology, no stream of archaeology happens in an isolated state, right? Like if I'm looking at the metal slags from some excavation, someone's also looking at the bones, we've got to call, someone's looking at the architecture, we've got to coordinate our interpretations. Like there's a big emphasis on collaboration within British archaeology for sure. I'm not like, yeah. Mm. And then of course, once you have this kind of training, then there's there's like an immediate um, result at the end of it, where you know there there are there's like a pipeline almost, or, or unless I'm understanding this wrong, but there's a way to to leave you know from you know using the connections that you've built and developed, and you know I'm I'm talking about personal connections at the university level that sort of you know, filters out into the, the real world of British archaeology where there are, you know, there's, there's, you can do this at a, at a professional level just with a bachelor's degree in, in archaeology, or, or am I misunderstanding it? Right, yeah, well, you can go into commercial archaeology for sure with an undergrad degree. So mm. commercial archaeology is like CRM in the US, right? Like, um, basically before any in like new infrastructures built be it a road a housing complex or railway whatever the um developers are by law made to get archaeologists in whether it's just watching the diggers go down and making sure they're not interrupting anything to full-scale excavations like going on we've got a new high-speed railway causing controversy but anyway in the uk at the moment and so across the whole length of the country and there's archaeology going on in every single stretch of it basically so it's a massive undertaking mm. and it's really good for commercial jobs and yeah you can go into it in just a bachelor's degree what what's the uh what's the controversy what what is the what, what's the problem <laughs> it's basically just um it's more a political thing about the railway to be honest it's nothing to do with archaeology but um people just it's the first track is going from London to Birmingham and there was going to be two separate tracks going further north from Birmingham after 2024 or something after they completed the first track and now they're saying oh we don't have the money to go further north and people just say it's just reinforcing the north-south which is like the opposite to in the states right but the north mm. gets left behind and the south is everything's London centric and it's like well you're just connecting Birmingham to London which has loads of railway tracks, and now you just put a high speed in, and now everything north of Birmingham is just left behind again, basically. 
I see. Okay. So, so it's not, it's not, there's not a, 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 like a fight going on, you know, where the archaeology is making the work go too slow or the archaeology is making it, you know, too expensive or anything like that. I this. think people are used to that now. That, that does go, people complain, obviously. Right? Sure. Uh, an example would be my friend Mike worked on a site in um, Wales, North Wales, and they found a, like an, a whole, it was for, uh, sorry, I should have said the context, um, there were Japanese developers making, like proposing a power plant. Mm. And the archaeologists went in and they found a, a whole Iron Age village, basically. And Historic England had said that they can no longer build the power plant on that part of the site. And so it can cause like a lot of controversy, the archaeology to be fair. I'm sure it's the same in the States with the CRM, because I know you've got fairly similar procedure going on there. Yeah, there there was an example from several years ago at this point now. And um and of course I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the hyper local example of of Miami, um, which is not known uh for being a hotbed of archaeological research. Uh, you know, but there was a uh, surprisingly enough, there was a a, a a development company wanted to build a large um, uh, housing complex and condos and hotels and this kind of thing, um, and they broke ground and uh, you know had the CRM people. CRM meaning cultural uh, resource management, uh, just in case we haven't you know defined it or if somebody doesn't know what it means, right? CRM, uh, it, it's this group of archaeologists that go in and, and do what you're talking about. They scout and they survey and look at all this kind of stuff. And, you know, this team was able to find um, the remains of one of the very early buildings built by um, by the, the, the early um, American settlers uh, to uh, Miami. Uh, so the, the, these were sort of like pilings uh, for a big hotel that would have been there in like the 1920s um, and even a little bit before that. Um, and then deeper than that, they found a, a, a stone circle, um, which was left from the the native uh, population. Um, wow. that this, yeah, this would have gone back um, many hundred years, uh, and it's known as the Miami Circle. Um, and they, it ended up, it ended up sort of, you know, changing the project drastically. Um, and it was, it was sort of, you know, th those people who were investors in it obviously were, I think, not super happy that this um, discovery, you know, interrupted their plans. But um, ultimately, I, I think it's a, you know, it's one of the, the one of the 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 good stories about archaeology because the stone circle was preserved and and you can go to the site and look at it and it's freely available to the public. So, um, you know, that was, a, I, I chalk that one up as a win. Um, oh, yeah. Because, People like us, it's amazing that yeah. everything has to get excavated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 okay. So, based on everything that we've talked about so far, right, um, you are using, you know, sort of good methodology um, there is a, a demand for archaeology, especially in a place like England, um, or I should say the UK in general, right? There's lots of history, lots of things to dig up and find. Um, it's enshrined into law, right? Um, that you have to go and you have to do this kind of research and survey before you build something. Um, so clearly people do care about it. So my next question is, what is going on with the attack on archaeology, right? And I mean, you know, I know, I know Sheffield has, you know, been sort of going through its, it, you know, tribulations recently. And I, you know, for, for those who don't know, I mean, you know, maybe you can give us some background about what's been going on. And, and then I'm very curious to hear your opinion. Why? Why do you think it's happening? Mm. 
Well, what's going on is it came out of the blue, to be honest, in May this year. Um, staff and postgrad students, and then later undergrad students, just got told, I think, the 25th of May, that there had been an investigation and they were going to suggest, well, the investigation was going to carry on, but there were basically three options for the Department of Archaeology at Sheffield. One, to keep funding it, two, to close it completely, and three, to move aspects of the department into associated or like similar departments, basically, like move human osteology into medicine, for whatever that's, <laughs> we can talk about the reasons why that's stupid anyway. But then it went to um, Senate review, which the Senate is like the head of like the academic decision-making and then the council, which is like the administrative and they all voted basically for option three, which was move areas of excellence into different departments. So it effectively closed the Department of Archaeology in Sheffield. It's been open for what, 60 years and produced lots and lots of like high level research to be fair. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, including work on Stonehenge and I mean like very yeah, famous projects. There are all sorts of things, yeah, yeah. Like Stonehenge is a big one. Mike Parker Pearson, if you've ever watched the Stonehenge documentary, he's always on there, basically. He's at UCL now, but he spent 20 years in Sheffield doing all the research on Stonehenge and things. Mm, mm. So so what what exactly prompted this? Like, what do we know why this started to happen? Or this, I mean, like, I know, you know, as an end user, right, you're just being told this is going on, but I mean... And we're not the only department. There's departments in Chester and Leicester and other other places around the country have had similar things happen to them. And really, we've not been told why. But mm. they say we're not we're relying heavily on international students, and it's not sustainable. I'm not sure why, because every department in the whole university relies on that. They said we're running right. We don't bring enough money. We're not running as a deficit. We're running profit. Um, so I'm, they haven't given a reason. I suspect it being cynical, it has something to do with the government suggesting that certain degrees, basically anything but STEM, are useless, basically. They, mm. They're reducing funding for non-STEM degree programmes. And universities in the UK are still partly funded by the government. And so not just funded privately by fees and things. So maybe that would have something to do with it. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> so I so this this is such a this is such an interesting problem for us to deal with, right? Because I I I, I think that this is something that really affects everybody um, in terms of you know, in terms of the the fate of the field, right, and the fate of 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 this this sort of line of inquiry, um, because as I'm fond of saying over here, it, at least in the U.S., right, that if we there are only so many of these programs, right, um, only there's a finite number of archaeology departments, whether classical archaeology or um, anthropo you know, anthropology-based archaeology, something, you know, b departments that focus on 
um, Native American archaeology or New World archaeology or colonial archaeology or whatever, right? There, there are there is a a a a finite number of them in existence, and you could theoretically close all of them. And at at that point, once you have closed all of them, um, what is the end goal, right? What 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 happens after the last one closes? Um, and I think that this argument can be made just the same for UK archaeology as it can be made for US archaeology, um, that there will come a point where you have closed all of them. Um, and then what is the what is the upshot? What it what actually what do we hope to accomplish by doing that? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, do, you know, do you can you envision a time, you know, when all of them, the attack is so thorough and so devastating that that there is no way to do archaeology anymore in the UK? Or do you think that there, it, there will always be enclaves where it exists? Yeah, I mean, like, I think even in the most extreme cases, you'd still be left with, like, Cambridge, Oxford, UCL, Durham. But, like, it, it'd just be gatekeeping for the elite. we go back to lords going to foreign countries and nicking stuff for the British Museum, right? Like, it... I don't know. I think that would be the, I can't see everything closing, especially like Oxbridge and stuff, like they're bastions of humanities, right? They'll do whatever they want. No government's ever going to tell Oxbridge what to do, but, mm. but yeah, absolutely. Like the, but they're not the most dynamic departments, especially at undergrad level. It's very, very like, like then undergrad, I think at Oxford and Cambridge for archaeology is, mainly just archaeology and anthropology straight you learn what happened in the bronze age you learn what happened in britain during the roman period and that's it there's no like integration of scientific analysis and social theory and things completely different at postgrad level completely different after that as well there's many good academics who are researchers and stuff at cambridge Oxford, obviously but i think like undergrad level we need places like sheffield places like Durham, places like UCL, because we're the ones that are pioneering new methods and stuff. Mm. So th this actually leads me to yet another question here, because um, you mentioned earlier that that it, you know if this doesn't rise to the level of STEM, then it's inherently vulnerable. But if you are using you know cutting edge scientific methodology, right? If you if you are being truly interdisciplinary. You know, and you are reaching out to, you know, the geology department and you're reaching out to the physics department and you're reaching out to, you know, you name it. Right. You know, various other departments and you and you were you're you're sort of borrowing their techniques and 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 you're using the same type of inductive reasoning just from a philosophical level. Right. And your goal is the same. Right. Which is to produce new knowledge about the ancient world, right? You know, the, what, what is the difference here between, between producing new knowledge for chemistry and producing new knowledge for what the Bronze Age of, you know, Aegean looked like? I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the end of the day is, is the, the point is to make new knowledge, right, then you're both on the same team. So how is it that, you know, and, and does it, is it safe to say that we're, that, you know, departments like yours are blurring the line between what a STEM field is and what a humanities field is? Yeah, 
definitely it's not it's also the aims are similar there's lots and lots of uh, research going on in archaeology to look at sustainability and climate change and how humans have dealt with it before and what like things like that right and like that's what the new vogue is in biology departments and chemistry departments so we're we are have got the same aims and i think we are blurring the lines between humanities and sciences but at the same time we're not a straight stem because without the humanities element we're not archaeology the important thing is that we're looking at the human past and human culture if we ignore that and just look at the scientific analysis of a copper knife then we're not doing archaeology right right so i don't think we should be counted as stem we're not with pure science we are blurring lines but we definitely need that kind of social social theory and like humanities aspect maybe so yeah it's a difficult one because people see us as like an off branch of history and like that's the layman's understanding right like we are just a pure humanities who just looks at the past but rather than look at books we look at things and that's it basically right See, you know, this this is this is fascinating to me for another reason, because I mean, you know, I you know, I, I don't know how much I ever told you about, you know, my my own upbringing, um, you know, and, and what the attitude was in the Lupu household right? when I was a when I was a lad. Right. Uh, you know, this is uh, and, and of course, I have to I have to struggle not to make the same joke I make every time I say the word lad, which is the Greek word for lad is marachion. Right, the ancient Greek word for lad is marachion. So I, then I always stop and I go, "When I was a little marachion, right?" Um, which is funny to nobody except for other classics nerds, but whatever. Um, you know, but when I was a little kid, you know, I, I grew up in a very you know science forward household, and you know everybody in my extended family were you know deeply involved in 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 the hard sciences, and there was a little bit of of kind of disdain, I would say, for you know the pure humanities, like, uh, like, you know, literature, right. Uh, you know, for people who wanted to spend their time in their life, you know, analyzing, um, English literature or, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you can name it. Um, there was even a little bit of, of sort of, um, disdain for the, the soft sciences, right. So, you know, if you want to talk about like psychology or something like that, you know, my, I remember my dad just, you know, railing and going, this is all nonsense and on and on and on. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily true, um, but but I can sort of understand it from the perspective of uh, an engineer, right, or uh, a mathematician, right, that, that one of those people with that type of training and that type of mindset um, are not necessarily looking at something like, I don't know, English literature um, and saying, you know, you are... Are, the point of English literature is to develop new knowledge about Shakespeare, right? Or to invent a new way of reading Chaucer, um, you know, but is that, is that ultimately, or do you think that that type of criticism contributes to this behavior that we're seeing now? Yeah, right. It's not seen as it's not as valid, is it, in their mind? Like, I don't know, learning how to read Charles Dickens in a different way isn't seen as valuable to society mm. in the same way that 
developing a new vaccine is like just to be covid related but yeah like absolutely <laughs> like i think that's why it's, it's also from the engineers perspective like you say it's snobbery as well isn't it they see themselves as like and you also get the arguments in stem though don't you that physics is just applied mathematics chemistry is just applied physics like engineering is just applied chemistry right or whatever you just it's dick swinging that's basically what it is <laughs> See, you know, it's it's funny that you you mentioned that about the you know the 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 camps that break out inside of you know even inside of STEM, they're not you know uh, immune to it. But I mean, you know, I always look at that kind of behavior as being very similar to like uh, the the history of the church. You know, it's it's like it's like if you've got one group of people that are that are absolutely convinced that you know they have the correct understanding of you know the nature of the Trinity. And, you know, Aryan Christianity exists over here and there is a like an irreconcilable difference between their version of Christianity and, you know, Gnostic Christianity. And, you know, in the in the fifth century uh, A.D. or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So, I mean, but it, it there is a certain impulse to that tribalism, you know, even in places where you wouldn't expect to find it. Or do you not think so? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that tribalism happens in archaeology as well, obviously. Like, everyone thinks that their discipline or sub-discipline is the best and the most relevant, right? But I don't know. I do I do think that snobbery is part of why humanity is denigrated by basically everyone in the Western world, right? In mm. terms of they're all closing. Like, in the US, you say it's also happening. And... Mm. Yeah. So I don't then, know what about it really, to be honest, because we're obviously of the background of archaeology and classics and things, so we're obviously shouting for the cause, but we're not the right people to fight it, I don't think, because of course we're going to fight it. Hmm. Well, I, okay, so, but that, that leads us to another interesting question, I think, you know, is how, how do you make, how do you mount a credible defense of archaeology to somebody who doesn't understand what it is that you're doing or, or or maybe has already made up their mind right i mean like what is the what is the path forward what is an effective way what would be your ideal way if we give you a magic wand and you say okay i'm going to be able to convince everybody you know with this type of argumentation you know what does that argument look like at least from your perspective i think if i was arguing against someone now I'd have to draw on how archaeological research is helping us understand climate change, um, changing like weight, like all of the changes in society at the moment and things like that, basically how it's relevant to today. But mm -hmm. I think the way to change it for the future is more public engagement and getting kids into it in schools and making it more accessible, basically. Like, I think we have a habit of, I mean, you can get, like, coffee table books of Pine Team and Stonehenge and stuff, and people see it all, and it's like, oh, it's very interesting, I'll go and see Stonehenge on the weekend. But to actually get people interested in the archaeological process, I think, is more important. And getting kids engaged and at an early age, getting families more engaged in understanding the actual process of archaeology rather than just looking at pretty things in the world, I mm. think. 
Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things that I always like to, um, just when I'm trying to talk to my own students and I'm trying to get them involved in archaeology, one of the things that I like to, um, I like to bring up is that, you know, cause I'm dealing with, you know, 18 and 19 year old kids. So you can, you can guess what the, what the state of their, uh, their dorm room looks like, you know, and it's a, you know, if their, if their dorm room looked anything like my dorm room did, it was, it's a disaster in there, you know, and that when you all of a sudden need to find a particular paper and it's buried in the stack of papers, then, I mean, in a way, right, you, you are doing archeology span because you have to figure out, especially if you've got dates on the papers, you can sit there and you can go, well, it was definitely before this time, right? So this is, this is terminus, you know, terminus antiquem right here, right? And it's like- Relative dating going on, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and it is possible to, to, to sit there and, you know, and it, and it seems like, you know, when you give examples like that, it's not controversial, you know, the methodology that you're using to produce reliable information, right? To, you know, to accomplish tangible goals here, you know, but somehow that 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 is lost when we scale up to you know bigger you know and more complicated you know examples I, I guess I and, you know and and I'm I don't know I don't know how you know to bridge that disconnect other than by you know having conversations like this and doing it in public right um yeah so okay so I think definitely making it more open to the public is the key isn't it mm. like don't sit behind peer-reviewed journals and things like that. It needs to be more open source, more public engagement, more open about the methods that we use and things like that. And what impact we can have on real society today rather than just showing what society was like 2,000 years ago, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of which, right, uh, you know, this, you know when, when you talk about responses to climate change, um, you know, I, I noticed that there is there is quite a bit of interest in uh, the the I guess it's so called archaeology of collapse, right? Um, you know, this is something that I that I noticed with uh, I've heard about it, at least with you know the Bronze Age Aegean, um, you know, because there is you know the famous Bronze Age collapse. But I mean, this this sort of thing exists as well um, in UK archaeology, and I mean, I I wonder if you couldn't you know sort of give me a better understanding of of how exactly that works right i mean like what does it look like from the from the perspective of the material culture when you see something like you know the roman invasion of you know of britain um or you or you you know you you're you're you can you can dig you know in the bronze age and actually hit a horizon of you know collapse you know what what exactly do we how do we how do we determine that you know from the material culture and what does it look like you know from your from where you sit Right. I mean, I'm no expert anymore on these periods, but I think actually the more we study it, the more we realise it's not really a collapse and mm. it's a continuation. And before the Romans got here, there was contact and you can find evidence for that in the materials. And all the, Ro the Romans already had allies in the local Britons and they came over and just through whatever, like, promising power or riches or whatever just the Roman dream maybe there was a, a, an acceptance from the elite and then when they left there was a continuation of this kind of stuff and maybe through disconnecting villages and things maybe you don't maybe people prefer to go back to some sort of way of life with the 
Iron Age, but certainly there was a like a continuing cultural phenomenon after the Romans left and until the Anglo-Saxon invasion, which now we also realise through more evidence wasn't really an invasion. It was a similar kind of thing where elites came over. They already had allies. They'd already been in contact. They're just over the water. People moved a lot more than we ever thought 50 years ago. And I think these grand theories of change and collapse and things, I, I don't think they hold much water anymore. And I think the Bronze Age one's going to be the same, honestly. Mm. Like, yeah. So then can we make an analogous argument? And then can we say, let, let's say that we don't address climate change, right? And, you know, we continue flying planes and driving cars, which I, I sort of think we're going to do no matter what, right? I mean, you know, and it, it's, you know, should we really be thinking in terms of climate catastrophe or climate collapse? Or should we be thinking in terms like, you know, analogous terms so you know what you're talking about you know under uh in the roman example or in the bronze age example that that you know life will continue but you know maybe it will just be changed um and maybe changed in a way that you know we don't even recognize or understand now what's your personal thought i mean like again i'm not a climate change expert so i'm not sure what the ramifications would be for human life but Certainly, you would imagine that you'd see like a change in material conditions and culture if life on Earth was completely altered, right? Mm. But I think there would be it would be a gradual change, and the spread of ideas. Well, now the spread of ideas would happen almost instantly, right, with the technological age. But I think, yeah, we certainly maybe archaeologists of two thousand years will think that it was a rapid changing horizon right because we're just screwing the climate over <laughs> really quickly in like the space of 200 years and they'd be like wow this was, must have been a massive change but like i don't know i don't really know without knowing enough about climate change like i don't i don't like talking about what i'm not familiar with enough to be an expert but yeah no 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 fair no that's fair enough no i i, I just you know, I always like to think about it. I mean, because obviously I'm not a climate change expert either, right? You know, I'm, I'm I remain fundamentally skeptical, um, you know, about about every possible scenario that that could, you know, or could, you know, might or might not happen, right, in the next fifty or a hundred years. I mean, you know, it's sort of it's something that is that is, you know, intensely interesting. Um, but I, you know, it's like I, I don't know that 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 I can, you know, I don't know that I have an, a good enough understanding of any of this stuff to actually, you know, come down on one end or the other and say like, you know, without a total removal of carbon from the atmosphere right now, right now, you know, we are going to definitely be, you know, facing whatever, you know, uh, outcome X, Y, or Z, right? Um, I, I, you know, I, I I like to imagine, you know, archaeologists a thousand or two thousand years from now assuming that there are any, right, um, you know, digging through uh, and then finding like the plastic layer, you know, because that's that's like one of those telltale things where you're definitely yeah, right. going to be able to date, you know. Add to Thompson's three, like three age theory. And yeah. Add plastic age. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. When you, like plastic age would be a thing, definitely. If we were, the, if we were sitting here in a thousand years, we'd have a plastic age. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, it, it's just, it's so ubiquitous. I don't know how you could not. Right. I mean, you know, it's like, 
And that, that you know, I, I, and I, I, I can think just off the top of my head, you know, many, many times where I was, you know, um, working in a, in a trench and, you know, coming up with, uh, and the, the question is, you know, is this, is, are we in an archeological context or not? Right. And then, you know, a plastic bottle comes up and it's like, well, I guess not. Right. So it's like, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little uh, bit, a little bit sad. That is the most annoying that. thing though, when you think that you're like finding like really good, you found like a Roman coin or something. And then below that, you find the Coca-Cola bottle company. <laughs> Out of context, rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was all trash after all. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. a plow level and it's just been churned up. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. No, so, okay. So, so now um, we're, 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 we're sitting here, you know, sort of, I, it feels like we're sitting at maybe a, a, a critical time um, in terms of, you know, the, the field and the future of the field, you know, um, again, it's sort of, it, it feels like it's a, like it's a systemic thing, right? And it's not just in one country. It feels like it's coming from all over the place. You know, has it always been like this? Has, has archaeology always been under threat and we just didn't understand it or we weren't in the field soon enough or, you know, or, or, or is this actually unique, right? I mean, you know, I, 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 I kind of remember back to being a kid, you know, and it always felt like we were on the, the, the brink of disaster, either a nuclear war with, you know, the, the, the Soviet powers, you know, we're, we're always like a hair's breadth away from, you know, civilization ending, you know, which makes me think that it's always been like this. But then again, you know, human lifespan is short, you know, so, so maybe, you know, 50 and 100 years ago wasn't like this. I, I don't know. What, what is your sense well, in terms of like the death of archaeology, or yeah, yeah, I'm not so sure really. I mean, I've only been in it for ten years, right? So, it when I was starting my undergrad and doing my masters, it felt more stable. So it's mm. definitely in the last like five or so years that I think this kind of attack has really been enforced. I don't, I don't know what was it like what's it like in America do you think the same or hmm. like you know it it's it, it's funny because there are there's there's definitely I definitely notice that there's a broad-based attack on the humanities but you know it's the kind of attack that I I can remember from when I was in undergrad you know sort of participating in right where you know it just you did like step basically. i did yeah yeah you know i i did and, and I, one of the bodies, yeah. you know and, but i mean you know i i i remember just my own mindset from from that time period you know where i you know my my undergrad degree is in neuroscience um you know and i was very interested in cognition and psychology and you know what what it, what can brain imaging tell us about you know the way that consciousness arises in the brain right what what you know what 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 are we going to learn you know in in 5 10 20 25 years you know about the human brain you know that is going to have major philosophical um, impact on, you know, everything, right? I mean, you know, you can look no further than the criminal justice system, right? I mean, you know, if it, if it turns out that, that, you know, you have a particular 
uh, I don't know, abnormality in the brain, you know, deformity in the brain or, you know, or, or something that prevents you from um, making rational, you know, decisions, you know, um, should we be really engaging in this kind of like um, retributive justice, you know, for lack of a better term, right? So, you know, if you, if you, if you are guilty of having committed some kind of, you know, series of heinous crimes, you know, is the purpose behind incarcerating that person, is that, is that purpose meant to be, you know, because, because you've harmed all these other people, we're going to now harm you or the state is going to harm you? Or is the purpose that, you know, because you have this abnormality in the brain, you know, it's just best for everyone if we put you somewhere away from the, you know, the rest of society, you know, and, and they're like, they're different, right? They're, you know, they're different somehow. You know, and I, and I remember, you know, being an undergraduate and then and and sitting through like English literature classes, you know, and listening to how wild you were allowed to speculate, um, encouraged to even, you know, about what was the motivation behind writing this particular story. Um, you know, the, the, the example that comes to mind immediately is uh, the Maltese Falcon. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, you know, D Dashiell Hammett um, wrote the Maltese Falcon, and it's like it's like a detective story. It's like the prototypical detective story, um, at least in American literature. And you know, he, he writes this this whole story about you know the, the all of the tropes you know that you think of when you think of a detective story are are in the Maltese Falcon. They're baked into it. You know, so it's like there's a mysterious girl, and you know the hero of the story falls in love with her, but you know. You got to be careful because she's she's dangerous, you know, and she's going to, you know, turn on you. And, you know, there's this criminal gang and they want this artifact, you know, but these other people want the artifact, too. And, you know, the detective is lost in the middle and he's got to figure out who wants it and why and who to help and who to trust. You know, all the usual things you expect, you know, and and I remember my professor sitting there and, and giving us, you know, all of these examples about you know, anxiety and bringing, you know, I don't know, um, psychology into it and, you know, trying to analyze this story through a series of different lenses. Um, and then I remember at the very end of reading this, realizing that Dashiell Hammett himself was a private detective. And then thinking, you know, well, doesn't that change everything, right? I mean, you know, isn't it, isn't it sort of disingenuous to be thinking about this in terms of, you know, of like, you know, Marxist theory, you know, if, if you know that Dashiell Hammett was a, himself a private detective, I mean, you know, doesn't it become autobiography at a certain point? Yeah, or, yeah, you, know, right. you know, and I remember, you know, sort of just being, you know, I, I, I don't want to say losing respect for the humanities, but I remember thinking like, you know, this is not good, you know, like there, it seems like, like you can, you know, you're not, you're not encouraged to come up with definitive answers, right, that are testable in the humanities. But that's not true uh, across all the humanities, right? I mean, it, it seems like you're specifically trying to do that in archaeology, where, you know, you, you're coming up with a theory, you're looking for evidence, and the evidence either supports the theory or doesn't support the theory. And if it doesn't, you have to change the theory, Right. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's, that's, yeah. it is hypothesis testing. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and that, that's, that's a, that's a, that's something that is discouraged depending on which department 
in the humanities building you're talking about. Yeah. So, so is it possible then that, that the origins of the attack that we're seeing on archaeology are actually originally leveled at something like English literature, right? And, and we've just gotten caught up in the, in, the, in the sweep. I mean... I do think it's that, yeah, there's a broad sweep of humanities battery, basically. And because in the UK, archaeology departments are normally part of the humanities faculty. And so they get lumped in with it, basically. That's, but we have as much in common. We, it's, archaeology is a mix between what? Social sciences, humanities, and hard science, basically. At a broad sweep, that's what I, But we get put into humanities mm. because it's historical analysis, right? Well, we're looking at humans, so fair, but yeah. So then, I mean, you know, I wonder if a better way or a good way to defend fields like this, defend, you know, the classics, defend archaeology, defend anthropology, um, is not to, I don't know, not to, 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 to throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, well, they're all, you know, irretrievably, you know, wrong, right? Or, or, or that they're, that they're, you know, they're all a waste of time, right? But, you know, is it not through adopting these these you know hallmarks of scientific thought and and scientific advancement, will that not solve the problem organically? You know, or maybe we're too far gone, right? And and it's. I think I don't want to say we're too far gone, but I mean, archaeology has been using these scientific methods since the sixties, mm. and so. I'm not sure what could change now to make people believe that we're more of a hard science. I mean, I would say social science fits archaeology more than humanities, but it's not going to happen, though, I think. But, but by the same token, nobody is arguing that the psychology department should be closed. No, that's true. Yeah. Right. You know, and this is also despite the fact that there's, you know, psychology is going through its own crisis of replication right now. I don't, I don't know if, uh, if this is the same in the UK as it is in the US, but you know, there, there's, there's sort of been a, a lot you know, made of this recently where people are saying, you know, um, if you can't replicate you know, 60% or, or 50% of the studies that you're producing and publishing, then we have a giant problem. Um, you know, and, and that seems to be something that's affecting psychology um, but I think that is also affecting hard science as well. Um, that there, there's, there's, there, there are issues of replication that can, that can, you know, come up, you know, depending on what field you're looking at and depending on the incentives involved. Yeah, I suppose the replication argument is it depends what you, what you're trying to, what you think should be replicated, right? Mm. So in psychology, you can replicate. A pa if you have a patient with the same symptoms, you can see if it manifests itself in the same, well, if the symptoms have manifested themselves because of the same disorder type. Like, mm. That can be tested. I think, I don't, yeah. So I think the replication thing has, it depends what you're trying to be after, and that would have a problem in every single aspect of science, wouldn't it? Mm. So. I suppose right. in the same way, archaeology doesn't have a replication problem because I could say, well, I'm replicating, excavating a pit with like whatever sherds in it. And I know that if I excavate a pit with sherds, last time, 
it was because it was a rubbish dump. And now I've excavated it, I'm hypothesizing it's a rubbish dump and I'm proving it's, a, I don't know. Is it, I mean, like it's a broad thing, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, the, the, really, I think, yeah the, the analogy doesn't necessarily hold up in terms of a crisis of replication in archaeology the way that it would exist in something like psychology or medicine um, because you're right I mean you know and, and this is this is one of the fundamental you know I, I and I've I, I I don't remember if you were there for when this happened um, but you know when we were both digging in Greece together, um, you know, I got into a long, weeks-long argument <laughs> about about whether or not archaeology was or should be considered science. You know, and I kept on saying that you know you you run the risk of engaging in scientism, right? Um, you know, the, the, meaning that you know that that you could you could very easily fall into the trap of of of, um, you know, I, I, it's like the cargo cult, right? The, you know, the, the famous cargo cults of, uh, I want to say it's Papua New Guinea, I, you know, is where they, where they come from. I'm not hundred percent sure what the tribe actually, um, you know, where the tribe actually lived. But I mean, the story goes that, you know, the, the, that during World War II, these, these native peoples in the South Pacific, wherever it was, you know, were, were watching, um, you know, British and American, you know, forces build these runways and and talking on radios. And all of a sudden, you know, planes would land and they would unload all of this cargo and supplies and food and all these goodies and everything. And then after the British and the American, um, and I suppose the Australians left, um, those tribes that had observed that behavior started to build their own runways and build their own control towers with like little replica radios in there that weren't powered by anything but you know they're on the radio and they're hoping that one day the planes are going to you know come back and that you know from their perspective that's what makes the plane land right is that it's a it, it's by it, it's by doing these actions right it, it causes the plane to come in uh, as opposed to you know the way that it actually works right so you know just because i dress up in a white coat and I have a clipboard, right? And I'm walking around and I'm like doing sciencey things and using all the right words doesn't necessarily mean that I'm engaging in scientific, you know, discovery, right? Yeah, um, right. And I and I I, I I think that my point was completely lost on our uh, our physicist friend um, <laughs> at the Agora. Um, I do remember this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She she was not <laughs> impressed with my uh, with my argument. Um, okay, well, fair enough, you know. She can leave a message in the comments and we can start the argument all over again. Yes. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. It, but I mean, I, I guess, I guess the, the upshot of all of this is, is to say that, you know, it is, it is frustrating um, or I find it frustrating. I don't know about you. Um, although I, I get the sense that you are equally frustrated. Um, you know, when you're, when you're, really you're asking questions about epistemology you're asking questions about how do we know what we actually do know right and where when is it okay to say you know to the best of our knowledge right x is true um yeah. you know and and i think it's also fair to say that you and i both agree on what the ultimate goal of this type of uh, inquiry is right and that is to make new statements that are true 
um, and make as many of them as possible, right? To, yeah, to make new to knowledge. Yeah. Our ability, right? Because we're, yeah. we're never actually going to know exactly what happened. Right. Thousand years ago, 5,000 years ago. But to make assumptions from the best of our knowledge and, yeah, and using new techniques to make these assumptions better. I mean, our idea of, of the Bronze Age in Greece, for example, changes all the time, every decade. And that's a good thing mm. because we're advancing our knowledge. Mm. But, yeah. But I don't think we'll ever really know exactly what everything was like. Right. You'll, you'll never you'll never achieve 100 percent accuracy, but that's not necessarily the goal. Right. I mean, the goal is to just to know as much as one can know, given the evidence that we have. Yeah. But do you get the sense that that not everybody shares that goal inside of the field? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't want. Sorry, that was my. No, that's all right. I suppose in their minds, everyone follows. Everyone wants that, but I think people get lost in what they're doing. And I've been to a conference before of archaeological materials, archaeological science even, where a lot of the um, papers presented on material analysis was just that. It was just, we've analysed, we were a group in a lab, we've analysed a Bronze Age axe, and this is what it's made of. And it's like, so? So what? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> What does that mean, like, for human society? What does that mean for the people back then? Why was it made like that? Why wasn't it made like this? Why, where did, like, why did they get their materials from here? Why didn't they get them from there? Like, they're the questions you should be answering, right? Asking, not what is this axe made of? And that's just, and show nice graphs of, like, different chemical analyses or whatever. Mm. Uh, so I think people through specialization in archaeology we get lost on the question that we are looking at humans we're not looking at things we're looking at things in order to look at humans right like that why humans act in why society was built in a certain way and we're looking at the material condition that allowed that society to be built in that certain way or we're looking at what material conditions changed in order to adapt to the societal changes or whatever, but we're not looking at material for the sake of looking at material, which I think a lot of archaeologists like forget, basically. They, they think we're looking at things. I'm a metals expert. I'm looking at metals. No, you're not. You're looking at people through metals, right? Through the, yeah. Right. And it's, and it, you know, to your point, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I would make a further argument there and say that, you know, the, the, the upshot of, of, of taking that that stance is that you know you can potentially start to answer the much deeper questions right like i mean you know one one of the big ones that i've always wondered um and i you know i, I don't know if you've ever thought about this either but you know when we when we you know everybody is you know who gets involved in archaeology um especially you know people who are going to be prehistorians at some point are going to encounter the story of you know settled agriculture um, and and the emergence of cities, um, you know, and and it's that is always a very tricky 
thing to wrap your head around because, you know, you sort of, or I always wondered, you know, is civilization an emergent phenomenon? You know, meaning that, you know, is it, is it a function of like population density? Is it a function of, is it just something like, or, you know, or is it something like a beehive, right? That, you know, one individual bee is not going to make a beehive, but it takes, you know, a combined effort of, you know, all of the bees together. And it's an emergent phenomenon of just the way that bees are, are wired, you know, and can, can you, can you make that same argument with, with human beings, you know, is, is that meaning that, you know, is, is it a natural consequence of putting enough people together in one place that a city is the result, you know, or is there some sort of like intention behind it and like planning and, and, and so forth? Right. So it's like rather than which is traditional looking at what kind of change in materials allowed agriculture to be adopted. It's what what changing societal, like what change in society and culture facilitated sedentary lifestyles, right? Like, mm. yeah, I think that is more important. I think that is how archaeologists started to look at it rather but traditionally certainly it would be we see a change here what looking at the materials like oh there must have been something environmental or some kind of material adaptation and it meant that they were better at doing certain things because their materials got better and so then we had agriculture right but actually it's probably because society was changing through social mechanisms right yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's so, that's so interesting and such a, such an important question to have answered, I think, just, just for, just, again, I'm, you know, maybe I'm going on a flight of fancy here, but, you know, I, I imagine, you know, let, let's, let's flash forward, right. And imagine, you know, a, an interstellar or interplanetary species, you know, where, you know, if we, if, if there's actually, a good faith effort, you know, made to colonize the moon. Um, you know, what exactly is that going to look like? Um, and how quickly can we expect whatever society develops on a place like the moon, right? Or, you know, it doesn't have to be the moon. It could be Antarctica, right? Um, and actually, and I remember, I remember reading about this a while ago that, that um, I think anthropologists have actually studied um, McMurdo Station in Antarctica because they can actually see the beginnings of like a new dialect of English forming, you know, because of the isolation and because of, you know, the, the, the critical mass of people has been hit, you know, for people who do work, you know, there's, there is like a, a South Pole accent, right. Or an, or an Antarctica accent, right. You know, so, so, you know, and, and, and being able to like have that information on board before you go and start a project like colonizing the moon. I mean, wouldn't that be good to have in your back pocket? I mean, like, you know, wouldn't it, Right. you know, just, just for all kinds of, you know, practical reasons. I think it would be, it would be a, uh, it would be worth having that information, having a, a good understanding of how that process works. Right. Yeah. yeah. So looking at societal change through like different conditions, basically, which is what archaeology aims to do anyway, right? Like, right. Yeah. Right. In which way it's like more akin to anthropology as well, right? Than it is to history. So, yeah. 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 And it and it it is it is difficult to draw the line, you know, between the one and the other, and you know, and and I, and I guess 
you know, I guess just because of the way that, you know, archaeology as a field, you know, developed, um, it, it seems to have developed or its earliest roots um, seem to come as an as like a, an offshoot of classics, right? I mean, you know, if you want to go back to the example of, you know, Heinrich Schliemann, right, who everybody loves to, you know, make fun of and, you know, talk about what, a, what an awful archaeologist he was, um, you know, but now it's turned into something else, right? If you if you take the field as a whole, um, even though there are some uh, you know bitter enders out there like myself, right, who continue to do it through the classics, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it, it did start with like antiquarians collecting shiny goods, right? But I think though, like I I mean, like I'm not in classics, but from what I've seen from excavating the Agra and things, like classicists are embracing archaeology much more like you for example obviously like there's no longer just looking at ancient texts and trying to determine what classical Greece was from Homer right like you're actually looking at primary evidence and going back to that and using the text to reinforce what you're or even like the excavations to reinforce the text or disprove or prove it whatever yeah but I think that is important like classics is now almost like a strain of archaeology or archaeology is like a technique used in classics right yeah 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 no no the break break it. so this is another one of those things that drives me up a wall um i i you know maybe i shouldn't be too flippant you know when i uh when i make sta statements like that but i i do find it i guess annoying um when we pay lip service to um you know to interdisciplinary approaches to any one of these questions or fields but then we sort of like don't do it you know it's it's like it's it's one thing and again this this is sort of you know in my mind right this is a, a form of that scientism i was talking about or, or that cargo cult thinking you know where as long as i say that i'm interdisciplinary or doing you know or or i i i use the buzzword interdisciplinary then that's okay um, and somehow I'm like protected, right? Or I've 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 said the magic words, and therefore you know my work now is interdisciplinary, as opposed to to you know looking at it on a more you know foundational kind of level, um, or looking at it from a more um, I I don't know changing your philosophy when it comes to you know just the just the 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 baseline ideas about what it is that you're you're hoping to accomplish and, and how and what the methodology that you're picking is. So I you know I know but I, I agree with you completely because you know the more that you learn through archaeology about the Bronze Age Aegean, the more it should um, inform your your reading of Homer. Um, because that's th those are the people that Homer was talking about, right? I mean, you know it's you know, I mean, I, I guess Homer as an author and, you know, there's a there's a big question as to, you know, what the exact dating of the Homeric tradition should be, you know, and obviously, I mean, that's sort of beyond the the, the, the scope of what we're talking about here. But, you know, suffice it to say that it's, it's definitely after um, that time period of, you know, the the Minoans and the Mycenaeans and so on and so forth. But I mean, um you know, the more that you, the more that you gain an understanding for, you know, for how that culture worked, um, you know, the more that it is going to influence, you know, um, Homeric problems or more, it should influence Homeric problems, I think. Right. 
um, just just because there there is a there is you know the you know Homeric scholarship, and I'm I'm, I'm picking on Homer here, but it doesn't. I don't you know we don't, we don't have to pick on Homer. You could pick on whoever you wanted. Um, you know the, it, the Homeric scholarship, you know, dates back to you know Hellenistic Alexandria. You know, so I mean, you know, even at the time, um, you know, of whatever, you know, the the third century BC E, um, if we're using that convention, um, you know, there there were there were there were major questions as to what exactly the words were, right? What did they mean? You know, there there was the the Greek had become so archaic and so you know. Um, exotic and and so you know ossified in this tradition of Homer that you know it, it required scholars to sit there you know and and pour through and use this kind of deductive you know reasoning to to figure out what exactly you know what these words meant and what they were supposed to be and and we have the notes still right you know um, yeah and and if you can if you can shed light on what any of those you know problems were or are still. Um, and you can do it through archaeology. I mean, then is, you know, d don't we all win when that happens? I mean, you know, isn't that isn't that like a boon? And isn't that shouldn't that be in and of itself a defense for keeping the archaeology program going, right? Keeping the department open, right? I don't know. I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, like. I think we obviously both agree that closing archaeology departments is is fucking stupid. <laughs> but like, yeah, it still goes back to like how how we can like we obviously think that, but how are we going to even change that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I you know I this is why I you know this is why I got involved in 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 this podcast um you know this was not my idea believe it or not um I was approached to to start doing it um and I I I did it very you know very much with that thought process in mind you know is there a way you know can I, what can I do personally um to to try and uh you know uh, push back the rising tide here, uh, and and I and I I don't I don't think that it's a waste of time to try, right? I don't think it's a waste of time to try and have these kinds of conversations um, and do them in public, um, and and make make the case, make the case for why it's you know why this is something that we should be you know supporting and 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 furthering right and and uh i don't i don't think that the that the argument really gets made in public um very often um or even at all right i mean you know what you know the the famous examples in the in the cultural you know zeitgeist right the famous examples of archaeologists that people point to are people like you know it's it's fictional characters it's indiana jones you know um you know, I, I, you know, Mary, you, you know, you at least have Mary Beard for the classics, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know that Mary Beard is out there, you know, on any of her shows saying, you know, and this is why you should keep, you know, the classics department open, you know? Right. I don't think people don't even discuss what archaeology is really. Like right. a normal podcast situation for archaeology would be 
this is what happened in Bronze Age Greece. This is what happened in Iron Age Greece, right? No one talks about the actual process. No one talks about the archaeologists. No one talks about the methods and theories going on in order to come to those conclusions, right? They yeah. talk about end game, never like the process of getting there. So I think it is important what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like talking to people actually studying classics and archaeology and asking them what they do, basically. I yeah. mean, you also know firsthand what you do because you are also a classicist and an archaeologist, but still, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it, if, if at some point in the future, um, you know, I, uh, there, there, there exists the Matt Lester podcast, I would be very happy to be a guest on it, right? So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, and furthermore, I, you know, I would love to, I would love to at some point, um, you know, get, get somehow record what it is like to engage in archaeology on the day-to-day level, um, you know, warts and all, right? You know, just, be, just because, again, you and I both know how it, it is, in certain ways, it is the grand adventure, and in other ways, it is, you know, tedious and tiring and, and horrible in its own way, but I mean... You know, it's sort of you would never choose anything different, right? I mean, it's it's you know, and that's something that I think gets left out a lot as well. You know, it's so, you know, so perhaps one of these days, you know, you and I can take a visit back to the Agora, you know, and we'll bring the whole film crew with us and everything. Yeah, that would be fun, yeah, for sure. Talk about excavation stories. Yeah. Oh God, you know, the excavation stories, you know, are I I, I one of the one of the uh, one of the guests that I had on the uh, on the show. Um, earlier in this season's worth of interviews, um, you know, sort of, sort of hinted at some of the adventures that he had out there. But I know personally that there is way more to be had. You know, I, ju- I just think he didn't, none of us really want to, uh, to go out there and, and talk about, you know, all of the fun that we had while we were doing archaeology. But, you know, but suffice it to say, you know, it is, it is, it is the, um, it is so much fun, right? It is so much fun to engage in it, you know, much in the way that it, you know, I, I used to have a ball, you know, in chemistry lab, um, when I was an undergraduate, I I loved going into organic chemistry lab and, you know, it's like, what are we going to cook today? You know, and we're going to, you know, we're going to make, what, what, what weird, you know, exotic cocktail are we going to come up with now? You know, and it, it is, you know, if you have that kind of mindset, you know, discovering new things about anything, you know, is it has it, it, it's inherently pleasurable, inherently satisfying, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, have we said it all? I think we've solved another one for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose, you know, what we can do is the next time that the Senate and the Council gets together, maybe we can play them this episode and, you know, it'll sway them one way or the other. <laughs> Sit down. sit down let me buy you a beer right let's talk let's talk about archaeology no all right well um i you know i i thank you so much right for uh for coming on and agreeing to uh you know waste yet another uh i don't know how many hours we've done uh you know uh on on my uh on my ramblings and your ramblings as well um Always think, a pleasure. my pleasure absolutely yeah no i we've done we've done an hour and a half um 
So I, I think I think uh, I think that's 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 uh, that's fantastic. You know that we were able to sit down and and do this. And and again, yeah, thank you again. And um, I uh, if if uh, if it's not too much to ask, I mean, I would love to have you back at some point in the future. Um, and if you know. If you if you did enjoy this, I mean, hopefully you would, uh, you know, consider a return visit. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah.